All right, and good morning again. <clears throat> Merry Christmas to you. Happy sixth day of Christmas. <clears throat> For those of you familiar with the liturgical calendar of the Christian year, this is the sixth day of Christmas, a season which lasts 12 days beginning on Christmas Day and ending on uh, January 6th, <clears throat> which is what we call Epiphany. It's when the Western Christians celebrate the visit of the wise men or the baptism of Jesus, but it's when the Christians in the East celebrate the nativity. So we're still very much in the Christmas season uh, for many folks. And so continuing with that theme, I titled today's message, uh, Borrowing a Line from the Hymn, Joy to the World, Let Earth Receive Her King. As uh, John Parker has already introduced us to this theme of kingship, Uh, that applies to Jesus, I want to offer some reflections this morning on what it means for Jesus to be the King. And what does it mean for us to receive Him as such? So, will you pray with me as we prepare our hearts? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock, our Redeemer, and our King. Amen. I think that the ascription or title or understanding of Jesus as king may be the most appropriate way to understand Jesus' identity. And I'm overstating this a little bit because oftentimes we focus on several other aspects of Jesus' identity and the kingship aspect can be overlooked. It's sung about. It's very much in our liturgy. It's in our music. Not always in our consciousness. We do think about Jesus as being the incarnate God as we should. This is good. As the true human being, this is what I talked about last time that I preached, as our great high priest who intercedes for us, the true prophet who speaks God's word to us. Yes, he is all of those things. But I think that king is more central than we often recognize. It seems to me that Jesus is a king who performs a prophetic role by teaching us the way of life, teaching us the word of God who accomplishes a priestly task when he offers himself for our sins. Uh, Oftentimes in theology, we speak of Jesus having three offices. The three offices of Christ are prophet, priest, and king. Any of you who've been uh, learning maybe the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is one of the standards of the Presbyterian Church, will be familiar with that language. It's very common in the Westminster Standards also in the theology of John Calvin, to structure how we think about Jesus around those three things. He's the true prophet. When he speaks, God is speaking. He's the true priest. His intercession is eternal and lasting, and he is forever interceding on our behalf. And he is the king who's come not only to redeem us, but to rule over us now and forever. I think that oftentimes in our, maybe our devotional spirituality, we emphasize the priestly aspect of Jesus over the other two. It's almost a book of Hebrews, which focuses on the priestly aspect of Jesus versus the Gospels, which really present Jesus as our King, even though oftentimes the crowds mainly thought of him as a prophet. You can see how we emphasize the priestly aspect perhaps over against the others, or maybe at least how kingship gets left out in this sort of traditional way of sharing the gospel. See if this sounds familiar to you. Someone who wants to share the, the gospel with you, who wants to do evangelism, might say, listen, there's a God who exists who's good and just, but we humans are sinners. We have sinned against him, done wrong things. But that's okay because Jesus 
dies for our sins. He's an atoning sacrifice. So that if the sinner repents and trusts in Jesus, they'll be forgiven and reconciled to God and have eternal life. Does it sound familiar? Well, I would say that I think all of that is true. But it is also reductionistic. That is to say, it reduces the gospel to one of its aspects and says nothing about Jesus being king or coming to establish his kingdom, which is what he talked about a lot, establishing his kingdom. No, the gospel proclaims to us that Jesus is Lord or that Jesus is king and that he has come to establish a kingdom that we're to seek first and to pray to come on earth as in heaven. You see, in the, in the little short Gospel synopsis I just gave you. Sorry, this thing's uh, kind of jumping around here. Um, <clears throat> I think it's my glasses that get in the way. Okay. <clears throat> it, there's almost no active role for Jesus in that little short summary of the gospel. He just becomes sort of the passive sacrifice for our sins. And we don't see him as rescuing us to rule over us, to give us life. <clears throat> but let's look at how the Bible itself talks about Jesus. And we're going to begin with the uh, announcement of Gabriel, the angel, to Mary in Luke chapter 1, where he appears to her and tells her what, who this Jesus will be and says to her, <clears throat> the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. (laughs) Is that part not popping up there? The throne of his father, David. So that's the part that comes up next. And he will reign forever. In this passage, which got cut off, I'm not sure how that happened, but uh, it says that Jesus will be called the Son of God, Son of the Most High. He'll be the Son of David, which is very much a kingly ascription that he'll be given a throne to reign, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The language of throne, reign, and kingdom are there. The Old Testament background for making sense of those passages is found in places like 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is the passage we sometimes refer to as the Davidic covenant, where God promises David that one of his sons will be king forever. He's saying to David, I will establish his kingdom, this son that comes after him. He will build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This passage sort of sets in motion this messianic hope, the notion of a son of David who will come to reign and have a forever kingdom. Jesus is that son of David. Or again in Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel has a vision of God in heaven, who he refers to as the Ancient of Days. And one like, you see, there came one like a son of man. He came to the Ancient of Days, was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is the son of man who receives such a kingdom. See, passages like Second Samuel and Daniel 7 are in the apostles' minds as they make sense of who Jesus was and declare him to us. Uh, In the Old Testament itself, it's important to note that God is often presented and declared to be the king, not just of Israel, but of the whole world. 
So in passages like the Psalms, who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Or again, for kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. Yet in those two passages, we looked at God is giving this kind of kingdom, kingship to someone else, namely to Jesus. The idea of kingship is actually also um, an inherent aspect of the gospel itself. In Isaiah, there's this passage where we get the word, it's one of the places where we get the word gospel from, this good news. It talks about what is this good news that is brought how beautiful, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings gospel or good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. That's what the evangelist, missionary, gospeler is saying. God is king. Rejoice for that. Rejoice that your God reigns. This corresponds to Paul's, one of Paul's The apostles' favorite summaries of the gospel is to say simply that Jesus is Lord. When we get to the trial and crucifixion of Jesus, in John's gospel, he stands before Pontius Pilate, and Pontius Pilate asks him, are you a king? And Jesus' response is that my kingdom is not from this world. It's certainly for this world, but not from it. That is not like human kingdoms. And then he goes on to say, it's for this purpose I was born. For this reason, I came into the world. And so when Pontius Pilate presents Jesus to be crucified, he says to the people, behold your king. And in a mocking fashion, they put him on the cross with the titulus above his head, which is the little wooden plaque that says, king of the Jews. Our king is crucified, though he is acknowledged in a mocking way to be the king. After his resurrection, when Jesus appears to his disciples, before he gives them that famous passage that we call the Great Commission, to go into all nations and make disciples of all people, he says, first, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. All authority has been given to me. Not will be one day, but he says now. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. That's, it's, like, it's like saying Jesus is the most important person There is. He has all authority. In the book of Revelation, when it looks to the future, what will be one day, in Revelation 11, 15, it says, And the seventh angel blew his trumpet. There were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Does that sound familiar? And he shall reign forever and ever. <clears throat> the Hallelujah Chorus. And this should be the great prayer and desire of the Christian to see his kingdom come on earth as in heaven, as Jesus taught us to pray <clears throat> in the Lord's Prayer. And so, <clears throat> if all of this is true, when the hymn declares, let earth receive her king, the posture of the Christian should be, yes, indeed, Come and reign over us. And what kind of king is he? The, the, the hymn gets it right. It says, he rules the world with truth and grace. You see, in the gospel, God's kingdom is coming to bear upon the earth in a fresh new way. It was anticipated in the Old Testament. It's now becoming a reality through Jesus' life and teachings, 
his death and resurrection, his ascension, his sending out the Holy Spirit, and promised return. See, the good news of the gospel is not, first of all, about us. See, it might sound weird when we looked at that Isaiah passage and we saying, this is the good news, that your God reigns. You're like, wait, no, it's supposed to be like Jesus saved from hell or something like that, right? Well, I think that's true. Um, Or it should be something like justification by faith alone. I also think that is true. But those are applications of the gospel to the person who believes. The gospel itself is an announcement, a declaration. It's first of all about God and Jesus, what God has done through Jesus. It declares to us our true Lord, our true King and Redeemer. The benefits of Him being King and Redeemer are applied to all who turn from sin and self, who trust in Jesus, that is, those who pledge their loyalty and allegiance to Him alone. Perhaps this is what needs to be added to that little summary gospel paragraph I gave us earlier. That Jesus came to rescue, redeem, and rule us. Those three R words, that's easy to remember. There's actually lots of R words. Uh, Rescue, redeem, reconcile, regenerate. You You can just keep going with the R words and build a whole theology around R words. There's a book there somewhere, maybe. He comes to rule over us. That's the one we need to not miss. He conquers death and sin in order to establish God's kingdom on earth as in heaven. But he doesn't establish it like other human kingdoms are established. He does it by sending his spirit to dwell in our heart and mind so that we come under the rule and reign of Jesus. And as we come under the rule and reign of Jesus, through us we're empowered to build for the kingdom, to see the kingdom come in our communities in our various relationships, all throughout culture and society. So God's kingdom comes here, and then God's kingdom can come out here among us. When people embrace or surrender or trust and hope in Jesus as their king, he saves us, and there, in that place, the kingdom of God is present, and it's happening You see, God is on a redemptive mission in our world, both then and now, to establish His kingdom in our hearts and minds and in our world. He intends for this world, all of us, to receive her King, His Son. And He intends the church as a community and the Christian as a person to be a visible display of His gracious, redemptive rule. I want to say that again. That God intends the church as a community and Christians as individuals to be a visible display of His gracious and redemptive rule. People who live under the Lord Jesus with all the joy to the world it's meant to bring. When we think about Jesus' kinship, kingship, it's important to ask ourselves, then, therefore, do we live in active trust and surrender to Jesus as our King. And as believers, do we actually think and act like this is true? That Jesus alone is the one to whom we owe ultimate allegiance. Certainly, He's our only hope for forgiveness and healing, but also our only Lord and Master. You see, I think that we like the idea of Jesus forgiving us but are resistant to the idea of Jesus ruling us. We like to be forgiven, 
mean, who doesn't want that? But we don't like to be ruled over. This is part of our fallen condition. There's a book by uh, Dan Allender called How Children Raise Their Parents. It's a book for parents and understanding what their children need most. But it's called How Children Raise Their Parents. And he argues in that book kind of two main points. He's a Christian psychologist, Dan Allender. He says, but two basic points. Children need to know two big things in their life to orient everything else. One is that they are truly and deeply loved no matter what. Truly deeply loved by their parents no matter what. And second, that they are not in charge of the world or their home. You're not in charge. And this sets them free to be loved and not in charge. (laughs) And he goes on to argue that we all need to hear that same thing from God, our Heavenly Father. That we are truly and deeply loved forever, no matter what. But we are not in charge. I can remember one time when my son Johnny was about two and he's an otherwise very sweet boy, but, it, you know, every kid goes through phases of willfulness, and uh, I think. And at one point, I was trying to explain to him, to a two-year-old, why he needed to obey what me and his mommy were telling him to do. He says, we're in charge, and so we, you need to obey us. And I remember him saying to me, no, I obey myself. <laughs> and when he said that to me then, it, it went into my mind, indeed, we all do. <laughs> that is our problem. We all just obey ourselves. It's important to consider what things might compete for this position of authority in our lives and be willing to ask. For Jesus himself said, no one can serve two masters. We might think that we can, but eventually you will grow to hate one, to despise one. And it's usually the one who won't simply go along with us, which is often Jesus. Uh, Tim Keller has said, if you worship a God who always agrees with you, you're probably worshiping an idol, something of our own making. Often those two masters, the, the opposing, the competition to Jesus, are presented as being various manifestations of money or wealth or sex or power or perhaps the self. The self seems to be one of the idols of our age, our culture of self-absorption and self-centeredness. Or maybe it's the nation or the party, or maybe it's ideal life circumstances. Whatever it is, I mean, any of those things can be good, but they can easily be twisted by dark powers into something that demands our ultimate allegiance, that demands that we sacrifice everything else in our life to have them. Do you feel that in your own life in any way? When we recognize those things, what should we do? We should come humbly before God and acknowledge them. Seek repentance and pray for His help. And look to Jesus, not only to forgive us, which He will do, but also to help us, which He will do. And as King, Jesus is a powerful rescuer. He knows how to deliver us. He has the power to take us from the paths of death and despair and to set us on the path of joy and peace, the path of truth, which is found in following Him. You see, Jesus can never be just a nice little addition to our lives. (laughs) He can never be reduced to being simply our self-help guru or sort of our imaginary friend we bring out whenever we need to 
feel better about life. And trust me, no one can make us feel better about life and help us than Jesus himself, but he can't be reduced to these things. He doesn't want to be simply a part of our lives. He is King and Lord of all. This is the Jesus that loves and saves us. And he's worthy. He's worthy of our whole life's devotion. He calls us to wholehearted, singular devotion. You see, all of us have to die before the king on the cross in our place because it's only there that we come to life again. In the hymn that declares to us joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. It's joy to the world when the earth receives her king. And it's only by receiving Jesus as our king that the world will come to know joy. And almost nothing good or righteous or just will be done in this world if it's not done from an overflowing joy in the Lord. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found, the hymn declares. This is what this king wants to do. He is no evil tyrant coming to strip us of what's good in life. He's coming to make the world alive and to make us flourish. My exhortation to us this morning, on this last Sunday, 2018, is to receive and surrender to Him afresh. To use this time in worship to find joy in a fresh surrender to His gracious, good, and transforming rule over us. Let's pray together. King Jesus. We seek to exalt you, surrender to you, and declare to the world that you are the good one. You are the righteous one. We do not come here today to think about our own goodness so that we can see ourselves as good people and the right people. We come to lift up the one good and right one who rescues us, who's mighty to save, who has all authority and is worthy of honor in every aspect of our lives. Would you please open the eyes of our hearts in these moments to see you in your glory, that we would joyfully surrender to your lordship and happily enjoy you ruling over us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.